This is episode 13 of Untangled Faith. If the idea of speaking makes you feel like you're going to get in trouble, that's a red flag in itself. I don't like being told what to do. So there is no way that a company would ever tell me who I can be friends with. The point of this this episode is I really want to share with people the value of having somebody as you're coming out of a, a painful situation, the value of community. This is Amy Fritz, and you're listening to Untangled Faith, a podcast for anyone who has found themselves confused or disillusioned in their faith journey. If you want to hold on to your faith, while untangling it from all the things that are not good and true, this is the place for you. Over the last two years, I've had a lifeline of community that God provided to help me walk through a time of healing from spiritual abuse. The stories I could tell of how some of these connections happened could fill a book. And I wouldn't be surprised at all to see that happen someday. Even as recently as this week, these unexpected pockets of community keep surprising me. I met a new friend, Ruth, and she described this meeting as an unexpected circle of sisterhood. The number of people that have supported us is too many to name here, but I'm thrilled to introduce you to two of them. Melissa Hogan joins me again in this conversation, and you have already met her, but you'll also get to hear from my friend, Lydia Craig. In this conversation, we share how we met, what it was like to be Ramsey Solutions spouses while under a no gossip policy, and how we were able to support each other as our time connected to Ramsey ended for all of us within several months of each other. And to keep the names straight, the first person you're going to hear from is Melissa Hogan, followed by Lydia Craig. I moved into a new house in 2015. God was prompting me to have community in some way. And that came in the form of starting a writing group. And I thought, well, I'm going to start a writing group. I don't know what this is going to look like. And I actually posted in the Lampo Ladies, which is the Facebook group Ramsey Wives were in or Ramsey Women. And I did not know either of you at that time. So I find a significant amount of joy and irony that that's actually how we met. And both of you said, hey, we we want to do that. I had not left the group, but I was not getting notifications because a lot of women talked on that group and, and it was kind of too much for me on Facebook. I had muted it or, you know, whatever the notifications were back then. And by some chance, Melissa, your post came through and it doesn't make sense even to this day that I would have seen your post looking for people that wanted to write because that summer, yeah, I really felt like God called me to write as well. It was just all perfectly aligned. Once a month we got together, we masterminded each other's projects and we just happened to all have spouses that worked at Ramsey, all in very different departments that really didn't interact in their work life, which is really interesting. And then there were other people in the in the group too. It wasn't just us. There were some other local friends I had who were writers who had, had published books. And, you know, it was just funny that 
you know, we were talking about writing, but it was also kind of masterminding at some point or it morphed into a semi support group. (laughs) It's just amazing to me, the things that God can do in stuff that doesn't seem like it means something significant. So part of our story with being at Ramsey, we were under this gossip policy. We weren't allowed to express any issues that we had that were negative about the company to each other. As far as we knew, well, we didn't know what each other's personal situation was or how people felt about the company, but along parallel lines, we all had our own separate little red flags every now and then, but we were not talking about them with each other at all. No, no. Um, I just wanted to be really, really careful. I didn't want to get you in trouble. I didn't want to get me in trouble or our husbands in trouble, which sounds really crazy. If the idea of speaking makes you feel like you're going to get in trouble, that's a red flag in itself. Yeah. The point of this, this episode is I really want to share with people the value of having somebody as you're coming out of a a painful situation, the value of community and how that has helped us, how all of us all had our own journey of coming to the end of the line at the organization. It just happened to happen at the same time for all of us. There was a period of about three months where all three of us were having serious struggles related to our spouse's employment at Ramsey. And we never once talked about it with each other. At the end of our time, Melissa wasn't talking to us about anything. And I did not know that Lydia, that their family was dealing with some really hard things in regard to work and that that was sort of coming to a head for them. I think we had a writing group in November of 2018. Yeah. And then we just stopped (laughs) every once in a while. I would think, it's really weird. We just like stopped and <laughs> we're all just not saying anything to one another out of respect and care for one another. Things became super intense in pretty much all of our lives. February, March, 2019. Actually, one of these days I happened to be at Lydia's house and I had just got a message from Nathan that his team leader had resigned. I knew that was a big deal. And in telling that to Lydia, Lydia also was like, what is happening? Within several weeks of that, Nathan resigned. Lydia was still kind of, their family was still figuring out which end was up with all of the stuff. So it wasn't until the dust started to really settle, like the end of that summer, we were able to come together and say, what in the world? What just happened? Yeah. I would say for myself that I was very naive like up until March that the company cared about us and would do what's right because it's Christian. So I just assumed that it would all work out. It went from that to like, a drastic no, like that's not the case. That's not what's going to happen here. You know, started in March when all the dominoes just kind of started to fall for all of us in different areas, but yet with a similar thread. I think the day of Nathan's resignation, either you reached out Lydia or Danny reached out and said, let's get together. I don't think I can fully describe what a big deal it is that Danny reached out to hear Nathan's story. And Danny was not at all worried about hearing the truth because sometimes people will leave a situation and nobody ever asks a question. So the fact that he was willing to say, tell me everything and willing to believe him. If you watch the dominoes falling in that story, when his leader and your husband resigned within, I believe two weeks, I was then under a gag order here this whole period of time. 
I had the opportunity to tell you all what was going on, but God really wouldn't let me. I remember I had a very canned speech for here's the deal. By the time I felt like I could tell you, or by the time also like you were out and I didn't feel like it put you at risk, then I really couldn't tell you. But then we just had to talk about other things, which was healthy in some ways, talk about other ways to support one another and untangle things and not necessarily the specifics about what was actually happening. The cost, I think it's hard for people to understand. I remember saying to the the wife of your husband's leader, if it's too costly to remain my friend, I understand. She said that would never enter my mind. I believe I probably said it to each of you before the point came to give you information that would be burdensome. You know, I think that's only fair before you give serious and hard information to say, Hey, you don't have to know this. And there's a cost to knowing it. That is something that I really appreciate about our relationship. There's very good boundaries and compassion for each other's situations. I don't like being told what to do. So there is no way that a company would ever tell me who I can be friends with. There's just no way. Danny was a little more hesitant, you know, with the gossip policy and trying to do things right because he was in the system. I think I was a little naive to how strict the gossip policy is because in my mind, none of that's gossip. It never has been, you know, whether the company says it is or not, speaking the truth about your situation is not gossip. They're definitely not going to tell me who I can continue to talk to and who's safe and who's not safe. We all had to make decisions independently about staying or leaving. We can honestly say we were acting off of information that we had come across or things that we had seen ourselves that helped us make that decision. But I think that that was helpful because we didn't all experience the same thing, but we had common threads. So there was enough to relate on to, so that someone's saying, Hey, you're not crazy. I experienced this too. But at the same time, there's enough difference to say, Hey, this isn't just one problem. This is a system. There are lots of things about the system that are wrong. It's also coming to like an independent assessment of what is the problem and what is happening to me. We, I think we each came to our own independent assessment that what was happening was abusive spiritually and in power and different ways. That then makes the discussion so much more rich because we understand it from our own perspective, not from somebody telling us, hey, this is what happened and this is what people did and what they said. We know our own experience and our own story. And then to hear other people's stories, it only can reinforce or take away with seeing additional parts of the pattern. I think if we had heard one person having a hard situation and it was isolated, that would be completely different. But at this point after the many years, oh yeah, this isn't a one, this isn't one isolated thing. And I also want to clarify, because I feel like in some ways when somebody says, oh, you made that decision because of your relationship with so-and-so, it makes it sound like that isn't valid. We know that one of the narratives that was told after Nathan left Ramsey was that we did it because of my friendship with Melissa. To that, I just want to say, Melissa wasn't talking to us. She hadn't told us anything that was happening in her life. We had seen some things ourselves independently. I was begging her to talk to me and she refused. If you're actually a decent human being, you care about people's stories and you listen to them and they will inform what you do. You care if somebody is being injured by an organization that you're affiliated with. And that doesn't make your decision not valid. You know, listening, actually hearing and having compassion about people's 
situations. I mean, that's what Jesus calls us to do when we refuse to take in and actually use the discernment that God calls us to. And we refuse to have compassion and say, well, that happened to you, but they were always nice to me. That's when we are outside of God's will for our lives. If this conversation seems to jump around a lot, That's because it's what we do when we talk. We talk about all the things. When you leave a place that's very much enmeshed in your faith, it's a big deal. And it can feel scary and it can feel particularly isolating. In the case of many people in this area, if you relocate for a job and it has any faith component, you can very easily have much of your world be all in one small bubble, even if you didn't intend for it to be that way, like your coworkers, your neighbors, your local mom's group that you're in and your church can all be the same people. When you come to the end of the line at a place that's a faith community, that can be particularly hard and lonely because you often have to leave people that were your friends while you were dealing with one of the most crazy things you have ever dealt with. God wants us to know and understand the full panorama of humanity. I don't think God ever meant for us to surround ourselves with all the people who are just like ourselves, whether that's living in a Christian bubble, whether that's living living in a, a white bubble. Part of preventing that situation is making sure that you have a broad community of people that you are involved in. If you do insulate yourself in one bubble that your work becomes your family and your social circle and your church, you're at risk. And it's much harder to leave that situation even when there are flashing red lights. It seems weird to say, go make new friends. Because that's really hard. I remember us having a conversation at one point about making friends as adults and how difficult that can be. You know, having communities based around the things that you're interested in and the things that you enjoy and the things that you care about and understanding that that's really important and that it's actually unhealthy to have one insular community for everything. But sometimes that community will try to convince you that that is the healthy thing when actually that's the unhealthy thing. Yeah. When we moved, our biggest concern at the time was that we were going to join a Christian bubble and we knew that that was not what God would want from us. So we were intentional about our church not being all people from the company. And like we always hung out with neighbors that were not part of the company. So in that way, when we left, we did have people that were outside of it. But it would have been really hard also to leave without you guys because you also need to have somebody to say, you're not crazy. I understand what it was like to be in it. And so my heart goes out to both groups of people, the people who only have friends in the system, but then also the people who leave and don't have anyone from the system to validate their experience. That word validating is what we have spent the last couple of years doing One of the values of this relationship was that we could kind of like work through the things that had happened. As time goes by, you realize new and different things that were completely normalized. You know, for me, the invasion of privacy issue was in in the exposure of, of my privacy. That's normalized. You don't think of that like one month out or two months out. It's six months out or a year out or even a year and a half out. You're like, oh, wait, that's really not right. And that's really 
not Jesus. I was told that was Jesus and that's not. You know, sometimes it's only having healthy friends outside a system who can say to you, hey, wait a second, that's not normal. If my company did that, it, it would be a very bad thing and it might be illegal. So those kind of people that are willing to tell you hard things and that are willing to say that's not normal, those are the friends you need to have to. We all had different levels of feeling traumatized by this situation and not everybody was dealing with the deep things at the same time. I learned from Lydia because she's our Enneagram whisperer. She has taught me boundaries really well. And so when we were first not hearing from Melissa, I was like, let's get together. Let's do something. And she was like, well, I know Melissa. I think she'll talk to us eventually. Some of that understanding boundaries has helped us even as we've gone gone along. I'm glad I could be of service, but I will say that your discernment on that was much more accurate than mine at the time because I was still in that. It's a good company. They'll do the right thing. It can't be that bad. You know, what you were feeling was true. It was good for me not to be pressured. I didn't have to then make the decision over and over and over again. What do I say? What do I not say? I really made the decision one time and said, here's what I'm saying. And you accepted it and you didn't neither one of you pressured me. You know, one of the stories I love is part of the story of Job where his friends sat there silent for seven days. If people don't know, I'm in a rare disease community. My son has a rare genetic disease that is um, very severe and terminal. Our community goes through a lot of grief and loses a lot of children. And one of the things we talk about is sitting with Job. You know, you can't do anything. You can't fix it. You can't make it better. And just sitting with them in that grief and recognizing that grief, saying that you care about them and you want to feel their pain with them is so important and so impactful. And so in our situation, Amy, you just showed up sometimes and you didn't make any demands of me. You just sat with Job and stood on the sidelines of flag football games and didn't ask me the hard questions. That was really important. And I feel like we should all be the early friends of Job at many times in our life before we start accusing and shaming and all the things his friends did later, but just sitting with Job in the places where people are in hard, hard places is really important. We can shift from talking about like what we feel like have been really serious, hurtful things to vacation plans. Other things that just make us laugh. Yeah, that's um, a practice that I named at one point, death and curtains. I have a good friend, Sarah. She's a great decorator. And I was building this house at the time. Both of our kids have Hunter syndrome. And on the one moment we would be talking about someone's child who was really, really ill or some surgery that our child was having or our fears. It was actually a period we were reading different books on grief. And then, you know, I'd walk in a room and she'd give me advice on what kind of curtains to hang in my bedroom. And I felt like, you know, you just have to live life. You can't stay in the space of the grief all the time. You have to have a well-rounded relationship. And so death and curtains, while we don't talk about death, we're talking about abuse and trauma. And then we're talking about our kids or going to the pool because you that's life. That's, that's life. And that's healthy. Our friendship started on some similar interests and we still even though we've been sort of sidelined by big life things, we're rediscovering some of those things again. And we, there was a time Lydia had checked in with us 
happy where you're like, um, who was I again <laughs> before we had to deal with the world turning upside down and having to think through career changes? And do you remember that conversation? I feel like I'm still in that conversation. When you're in an abusive situation, like everything is crashing down and you have to leave and you have to basically restart your life. You know, my husband didn't have a job for a long time. So I had to pick up work and I work to this day more hours than I did before we met. Are you have to process, you have to deconstruct and all of that takes time. I've listened to a lot of podcasts that I wouldn't have listened to had this not happened to me. I've read a lot of books that I would not have read. Um, we've had a lot of discussions that we would have never had. So, you know, all of that is part of the healing process. Unfortunately, the, the one negative thing is that you kind of lose the time and space for some of the things you used to enjoy. So like your hobbies, like writing, I, I don't write as much as I would like to. So I did come to a point where I was like, do you remember what my hobbies were? Because I, I don't have any self-care. I don't have any hobbies. What, what do I like to do? Remind me what I like to do. I mean, I'm reminded by something that Diane Langberg says and that recovering from trauma and healing takes talking, tears, and time. All of those things take time away from all of the other things you're interested in doing. We've all been able to do those things together. And like you said, at different times, talk through different things. I know we've all cried about different aspects of things and just the time it takes to reflect and realize new things is helpful. And yeah. we're all looking forward to having this hard thing take up less and less brain space. It, it does get less and less. I feel each year that goes by um, more healing and more space to think about what's life going to look like outside of this traumatic peak. You know, it's just a peak in your, your timeline. It's, it's not the whole story. Do you think we've been able to walk that line of healing in a, you know, processing this in a healthy way. I think that's the helpful thing about having several people. You know, it, it's funny that I had always heard when I was younger that three friends is not a really a good number because two gang up and then on the other person and three is not a good number for a friend group. And I've actually found that to not be true at all. <laughs> There's a good check and balance. You know, I think we've all had our different times of you're really angry or you're waiting for God to do something. And when God, when are you going to do something? It, it, having two other perspectives of, well, hey, you know, here's here's what I read today, or here's what I thought about today, provides that check and balance on helping us process and work through and especially work out some of those really negative hard emotions. You know, we agree on a lot of things. We've also brought new perspectives to each other, learning, having healthy boundaries in a situation, in a relationship this sort of community, I think is really important. If you don't, you can get probably drained. The wrong personality could allow themselves to get sucked dry through this. It goes back to that sense of having friendships and communities that are different from you. That is so important. I always want to have friends who disagree with me on various points, because you can only really think about all sides of an issue. If you hear a different perspective from someone who genuinely thinks about it that way, you can't just read about the different opinions. I mean, you can read about different opinions, but I love being challenged 
by someone who has thought through an issue and said, you know, have you really thought about it this way? And here's how I came to that decision. And here's how I came to that perspective. Yeah. And we were fortunate that we just happened to join a church that had that, that their small groups were always a mix of, you know, people in their sixties and people who are single and people who had young kids and people who had old kids. And, you know, it, so that was another um, blessing in our life that we had diversity and different opinions. That's a good point because there's people that are listening and I would characterize our situation, our group here as coming out of a high control group where you really have some very specific things you have to believe or very specific rules about things. So I think it was an important part of our healing to talk with each other about things that sometimes are uncomfortable or, you know, we talk about politics or theology where we didn't always land in the same place and not have a lot of anxiety as a part of that. Just having the discussion is worthwhile and it's part of caring about people is to understand their perspective and understand their experience, that it's not important that everybody agrees on everything. Regaining that has been really good for my healing. Regaining the idea of it's okay to disagree. It's okay and actually healthy for us not to all look at something the same way and to encourage that actually not to dampen that and punish that. I feel like we sort of were able to reclaim our voices. It was like a whole new world of communication was opened up. Yeah. It's, it's bizarre to think that we were in a system where some topics were off limits. I've never in my life ever thought that a topic was off limits, but I want to talk about what I want to talk about. Like my husband had an interesting situation where his, his next job, you know, he would go into work and coworkers would be talking about what their next plans are. They'd be talking about maybe I'm going to change careers or maybe I'm going to quit and do this. And and it just the realization, oh, that's normal. Like we can talk about whatever we want to talk about and not be fearful. There are a lot of layers. Being able to peel the onion slowly with other people is, it just takes time. I always think about the people who don't have a support system, like people under NDAs, like it breaks my heart to think that you can't process or tell your true story to someone because you're fearful of legal ramifications. I don't want anyone my personality. I don't want anyone to have to be alone with this. If I meet somebody that's in a, that has gone through something similar, I want to sit next to them and say, Hey, if you ever want to talk to somebody, if you've lost a job or you've lost a faith community in a way that's really traumatic, you aren't alone. And if you feel like there isn't a safe place there, there are safe people. Yeah. The sad thing is, is when you leave, you feel like you did something wrong. And so if you're unable to talk to anyone, like you could go years feeling that sense of shame that it was all your fault. And that makes me feel really sad. Whoever's out there listening that needs to talk to someone. I, I just don't want people to feel like their story is a secret. It should never be a secret. You own your story unless you're legally bound in some way, which often happens. Melissa and I talked about this in another recording. Usually there's a huge power imbalance on one side. I mean, how isolating is it anyways, but to have like some legal handcuffs on you are so, so bad. You guys have had people reach out to you in the past that have had church situations or work situations where they just said, here's my story. And you've been able to listen and say, you know what? You aren't crazy. 
It wasn't your fault. And just to help reaffirm, if you have been beat down over the last season, uh, here's what I see. Especially if you know that person, you could say, this was not your fault. I mean, that goes back to the issue of rules about gossip. The fact that your own story and things that have happened to you is never gossip. It's not gossip. And if by its nature, healing from trauma involves talking about your story, and in fact, repeatedly talking about your story. You know, if you read The Body Keeps the Score, people who are suffering trauma repeat the same story over and over and over again. And that's just a symptom of it. To silence people, whether through a non-disclosure agreement, non-disparagement agreement, or in other ways to make them feel like they can't speak about something that's happened to them. And, and sometimes even before they know that it's quote, something that happened to them, just to speak about their experience, to try to process it and understand it. And then even to speak to other people in order to see that there's actually a pattern to what's happening, because that isolation of feeling like it's only happened to me, is something I did wrong and not realizing that there's a hundred other people who that's happened to, or who feel the same way, there's value in that. And it is the opposite of Jesus to silence people in an effort for them not to say true things about you. Permission granted to tell your story in whatever way you feel safe. And then as you heal more, you have an opportunity sometimes to share your story with somebody else, not just so that everyone knows your story, but for the benefit of others. And And the Bible talks about that, that, that we experience things so that we might come alongside other people who are hurting in the same circumstance. What we go through is not for nothing. Look at your situation and especially look at how God walked you through that situation and how he directed you and how he is healing you and the testimony that that is in your life to use that to help other people. That certainly doesn't involve staying silent about it. What do you do if you have a friend that says, I'm willing to hear your story, but don't think that I'm going to join your side. Like first off, red flag, why are there sides? Like, why would you ever utter those words? Secondly, what do you do in that situation? Like, is that a safe person? Is that a safe place to to put your story? Part of the issue is for us all to understand what is healthy and unhealthy. The reality is we're all sinners and we all do sinful things or unhealthy things at different times. Hopefully those are isolated situations, but those isolated situations do not mean that we are necessarily unhealthy. So understanding our own situation, especially if we're involved in an unhealthy organization, by its nature involves the pattern, not just one isolated occurrence. And I think how abusers and abusive systems get away with things for so long is they force you to look at only isolated situations and say, well, yeah, that happened. And here's how we dealt with it. So if the right hand never knows what the left hand is doing and the right hand never knows that there are a thousand left hands that this has happened to, you can look at any individual situation and say, oh, we're going to handle that this way. So until you realize that the same thing is happening over and over and over again to lots of different people, you have no context for your story. And that's part of what I would tell people who, if they only want to hear this isolated situation, they're hearing 1% of your story. If what they're saying is, 
I'll listen, but I'm not joining you. I'm not joining your cause. I think I would push back a little. I would say, you know, I'm not asking you to commit to anything. I would want to know if there's some misunderstanding about what they thought listening entailed. Generally, a good friend and somebody who is telling their story as well, who has good boundaries, isn't requiring the listener to do anything except for believe them and care about the story. Something that I wrote once about hearing people's hard stories is that it is a kindness to be comforted. It is a benefit to be believed. It is a gift to be understood. It is an honor to be defended. If you are going to hear somebody's hard story, of course you want it. The baseline is to comfort them. And then, you know, they want to be believed. They want to know that you believe what happened to them. And then beyond that, to understand. So part of understanding is understanding whether it's a pattern, understanding how it affected them, you know, whether they're experiencing trauma from that. Now, the hard part is most people don't want to get to that point because at that point, it might compel them to do the last thing, which is it's an honor to be defended. So to then defend somebody who has experienced that might be costly. It might cost you friendships to stand up for them. It might cost you your job. It might cost things that you're not ready to give up. And so some people stop at the very beginning to not hear the story at all. They know that a decent human being would move along that path to to comfort and then believe and then understand and eventually might be called to sacrifice something for that person. So they just, they don't want to know or they want to hear and then move on. Yeah, that's interesting. It reminds me, I'm not on Twitter very often. A few months ago, I saw something on Twitter and I just could not not say something. And so I commented within an hour, I got a text message from a friend who was related to the situation, just thanking me. And I didn't say her name. I didn't say the situation. It was a defense of her and her story, but it never occurred to me that that would matter that she would even see it and that that it would matter enough to text me. So that makes sense, Melissa, that defense part of it. You know, some people stand at the side of the, the pond and say, oh, I see you're drowning. That's too bad. Some people might say, you know, here's a stick. If you work really hard, you can grab it and get out. And then some people jump in the pond with you and help you to the side. That's who Jesus was. And I feel like that's who we all should be. It makes me wonder, are you truly friends with somebody that you won't defend? That's an interesting, probably off tangent topic. What constitutes a true friend? Are they going to at least grapple with it? At least consider that cognitive dissonance and feel that discomfort and be willing to say, I don't know what to do with this. I want to respect people's boundaries. If, if they're not ready to deal with something, you know, I do want to respect that. I'm not going to no longer care about them because they don't or can't deal with something. But as mature adults, we should be able at some point to say, I, I can't deal with that right now, but I'm going to work toward being able to grapple with that. I think we've all had people that have said to us, either um, with their words or their actions. I don't want to hear about this. I believe it's caused all of us to be more empathetic to people leaving a spiritual, spiritually abusive environment. Every one of us has had an experience where we have seen somebody exiting a place that's abusive where we've reached out and said, I don't know your story, but I just want you to know I'm here and I'm willing to listen. And I think we've all also probably heard the, well, aren't you just being bitter? 
shouldn't you get over it? That one really gets me. But I will say that it has made me, it's made me want to make sure others don't get hurt. So I feel like that comment is what makes me speak out because I'm not okay with what happened to us happening to other people. Like I'm not just going to walk away and restart my life and pretend like it never happened. So I think even though we've had friends that have been disappointing and not supportive, I think that there has been fruit from those experiences that have helped us become better better people and support other people and and speak up for people who can't speak for themselves. There's a quote from, you know, one of the most toxic pastors out there, Mark Driscoll, who had to leave Mars Hill. You know, he used to say there's a pile of dead bodies outside the church and God willing, there's going to be more. I can't imagine how anybody thought that that was characteristic of Jesus or someone they would want as a pastor. That's really just one of the signs, one of the red flags for a toxic organization when there are just piles of bodies, piles of people who have been damaged and harmed and they're finally speaking out and finally saying something and that is never dealt with or acknowledged or recognized or reconciled. The idea that those people want to say, hey, I don't want that pile of dead bodies to keep growing is a good thing. From everything I've seen in the community of people who are recovering from spiritual abuse in some way, it's because of their heart for people, their desire for the refinement of the church and their desire to see the testimony of Jesus be pure and not warped and caring about people who are hurt. And it's never been from a sense of anger, vindictiveness, bitterness. It's really because of love for people and a love for the church and for the testimony that we're all called to have. How do you find community if it's not easily built in? You know, we had already cultivated something years before this happened. How about the person that doesn't have that? Where do they find community? You find community and you grow community. You know, to the extent that you don't have people that were in a similar circumstance to yours, telling your story to the people who are already in your life and helping them understand can grow that community. I have a great community on Twitter that I love so much. I've gone on to meet many people in real life from Twitter over the years. It started with a rare disease community on Twitter and now there's a Christian community on Twitter. And then friends said, you know, you meet people who care about the things you care about by doing the things you care about. That's how we met. It was hard to kind of take that step and say, oh, I want to start a writing group because there's that fear of rejection. And so maybe you have to be the person that starts something or joins something and or pour into the people that are already around you too. Um, I would just add not to disregard the online community. There's a reason that the Me Too movement, the Church Too movement has been so powerful. And that's because there is a support group online for things like this that you can tell your story and and hear other people's stories and feel like you're not alone. So even if, if you have to start online, like that's a start, start following the right people, start sharing your story with, with people already in the movement of spiritual abuse. Yeah. Melissa and I talk in a different episode about a lot of the resources, books and authors, speakers, podcasts, you can find them on their social media. And often the people that are following them, interacting with them will be a great place to start for sure. And we aren't with each other all all the time either. You you can use technology to communicate, chatting online, Voxer. You don't have to be in the same state, the same place. You can create community wherever you are. So that's what it's like to eavesdrop on a conversation between the three of us. 
Speaking of community, I would love to continue any of these conversations we start on the podcast with you. And we can do that on Instagram or Facebook or Twitter. I am at Amy Fritz or at Faith Untangled on Twitter, or you can find me on Facebook and Instagram as Untangled Faith. Thanks for listening to the podcast. I will see you back here next Wednesday on the next episode of Untangled Faith. And so I'm in this sphere where I'm teaching about marriage. I'm writing about marriage. I don't fit. Like I'm the ugly duckling. But this idea that you can't critique someone publicly is so unbiblical. When teaching is done in public, it has to be called out.